Hello and welcome to We Are The University, a podcast about the people who make Cambridge University unique. I'm your host, Nick Saffel. In this episode, we speak to Dr. Helen McCarthy, a historian of modern Britain at the Faculty of History and author of Double Lives, a history of working motherhood. In recent months, many working parents have had to juggle looking after kids at home with their usual jobs. We talk about how the pandemic has had a disproportionate impact on working mothers. We take the historical perspective and the long view to try and make sense of these gender divisions. We talk about our reliance on childcare, the broader economic impact of the last few months on women, and how to ensure it is truly valued in the coronavirus recovery. Just tell me a little bit about your experience of lockdown so far. Well, my experience of lockdown is probably fairly similar to that of many other working parents. I've had uh, my two primary school aged children uh, at home for most of it. They managed to get back to school for a few weeks towards the end of of the summer term. But it's been pretty intense and pretty full on. Um, I've been trying to do my teaching and my university work. My husband, who's a lawyer, um, has been working at home doing some virtual court hearings, which has been a new experience for him. And it's been, you know, we've been sort of tag teaming it, trying to sort of muddle through as best we can. Um, But it's been it's been a pretty stressful period. So do you think it's changed your working practices as a family um, with a sort of future mindset? Do you think it's going to change how you go about work? Well, I've talked a lot about this with with my husband, who has only been into his chambers in central London once since the beginning of lockdown. And it certainly seems that for the legal profession, there may very well be a longer term shift towards doing a lot, a lot more online, including potentially quite a lot of court hearings uh, virtually. So that could be a permanent shift. And I think for, for universities, for my for my line of work, Um, I mean, online teaching obviously is the immediate future for us because the University of Cambridge has announced that it will be providing all lectures online, at least for Michaelmas term, uh, and then a great deal of my undergraduate teaching uh, and master's level teaching will also be online with hopefully a little bit of face-to-face teaching in there as well. Um, But I don't know. I mean, the future is really open. I think it will obviously come down to how soon we get a vaccine, whether we can work out some social distance teaching methods that work really well uh, and how the pandemic pans out, I think, over the next six months. I mean, I do think that the longer we are in this groove of doing everything online, the more likely it is that it will embed itself and become permanent. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about your, your background and also about your new book? Sure. So, well, I teach modern British history um, here at the university and I've been in post since September 2018. And before that, I spent almost a decade teaching modern British history uh, at Queen Mary University of London, which is in in Mile End in East London. Um, But I am a Cambridge product, so I did my undergraduate degree uh, in Cambridge, uh, then did my PhD in London. Um, and worked for a little while for um, a think tank, the think tank Demos in the early 2000s, which was a really interesting uh, contrasting experience from from academia doing research in a very different kind of environment. Um, But I'm originally from Essex, from Colchester, uh, where I grew up, spent most of my childhood and teenage years. And 
well, I think that's probably most that I can say <laughs> about myself of any interest. And my book, yes, yeah, so my book, I've, I've written a book called Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood, and it was published earlier this year in April, actually really just a few weeks after the lockdown had started. So I initially felt quite sorry for myself launching a book under lockdown, but then realised that actually the themes of the book, which are all about how mothers juggled care and paid work in the past, were incredibly pertinent, uh, particularly given the theme of homeworking, because home-based waged work was actually a theme that came through very powerfully um, in my research. I suppose it might be something we'll talk about a bit more in a minute. Um, but the book is really meant to be um, a pretty broad, big social and cultural history of mothers who worked for pay in Britain since the mid 19th century. And I wanted to write a book that really just tried to sort of tell the story of how women did it, how women of different social classes, women in different parts of the United Kingdom, um, women of different ethnicities, women doing very different kinds of jobs and in very different kinds of family circumstances. So women who had husbands, women who didn't, uh, and uh, really just trying to kind of bring the story, paint a big picture on a big canvas, um, as I say, over 150 years. Looking back in history with that sort of lens, what has sort of COVID taught us about the importance of childcare and labour in general? I think COVID has has exposed something where, well, which people like me already knew, <laughs> yeah. but perhaps other people didn't, uh, which is that if you if you have a mass withdrawal of state subsidised childcare by closing nurseries, by close um, by childminders no longer being able to work, um, by uh, closing schools. Uh, by getting rid of, um, of after-school clubs, breakfast clubs, and very importantly, by cutting off access to informal sources of childcare. So for a large chunk of the lockdown, uh, families couldn't draw on grandparents or relatives or neighbours or friends to help out with childcare. Um, if you withdraw all of that, then we can see what happens. And what happens is that the sexual divisions, which already exist in our society, are magnified. And all of the research uh, that's been undertaken since the lockdown shows very clearly that it's women, it's mothers who are shouldering the burden of childcare, of homeschooling, uh, of housework as well in the home. And these are things that they were doing in greater quantities than men before lockdown, but it has been exacerbated and intensified um, under, under the conditions of COVID. So has it been equally felt across not just um, for industries and sort of classes as well. So you've talked about um, working mothers, but is it more greatly affected um, the types of industries and different types of classes? Do you mean in history or currently? Or both really. Sure, so I was very interested in trying to trace different, the different childcare solutions that women from different classes or in different industries um, adopted in the past. And uh, there are some re really important differences. So women of the middle and upper classes who on the whole didn't work for wages, but there were always exceptions. There were pioneer women doctors, there were writers, um, uh, artists and, and so on. Uh, and they tended to have uh, nannies and governesses and 
servants who worked who worked in their own homes. So they were sort of pretty well sorted for childcare, and also the upper middle classes, really right through to the later 20th century, also made use of boarding schools. It was fairly standard to send your certainly your sons off to boarding school at quite an early age, and that was you know perfect childcare solution um, for those for those classes. Um, for women working in the uh, Lancashire textiles industries, which was an area which had a very strong tradition of married women's work right from the early years of, of the Industrial Revolution, uh, they tended to use childminders. And these were often grandmothers. They might be relatives, they might be neighbours, women who lived very close by, maybe just the next street along, uh, and they would pay those women to look after their children after their and including often very young babies when they were going uh, to the factory and most other women it's a it's a kind of mishmash of other things so you find a lot of evidence in working class communities of older siblings looking after their younger um, younger siblings as one childcare solution and in fact often the older daughter of the family might have been kept home from school or might not have herself gone out to work straight away after leaving school because she was needed um, to look after the home, including looking after younger children. I mean, the one sort of common theme is that formal, institutional, high quality, affordable daycare, i.e. nurseries, is really the missing ingredient throughout the 19th and 20th century. There are very, very low numbers of nurses in creches. Um, with the exception of the two world wars, which we might talk about later. Um, and really, even in the late 20th century, high quality, affordable, institutional daycare, um, is, there is not enough of it, nowhere near enough of it. Have we sort of fallen backwards in some way now that all responsibility for children has basically fallen on, fallen on the parents? You, you mentioned the burden might be um, equally shared, but I'm thinking about are there a lot of tropes at the moment and recurring themes? Well, I think there's a real danger of regression. I think we're at a quite a crucial moment because, you know, this is we're still very much in this sort of temporary crisis phase. It's not yeah. clear, you know, what the long-term consequences of the COVID crisis will be in terms of childcare. We know that a great number of uh, nurseries in the UK have already said that they may not be able to reopen. Um, after the crisis has, has passed, uh, because they they've basically run out of cash, because they weren't a they, the government, although they ploughed billions of pounds into the furlough scheme and into propping up other sectors, they have not done that for nursery daycare. Um, so there's a real danger that actually, when when schools come back or when 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 things begin to resemble, you know turn back to something resembling normality, actually a lot of working parents will find that their nurseries are no longer there. Um, and of course, with many parents who are unemployed, who lose their jobs or who are financially struggling, they may not be able to afford to pay for nursery places. I mean, the UK has some of the most expensive daycare um, in the whole of, of, of Europe. So that's a big um, problem. So I think, I think we have to, you know, we have to see what what happens? I mean, there has been there are lots of lots of pressure groups that have been very vocal about this. Um, the Labour shadow cabinet um, have been very vocal, pressing the government. But I'm afraid the government itself has not been terribly attentive or proactive on this question, specifically about what happens to the childcare sector. Childcare in Britain has always been viewed by the government as as a um, or government not only I shouldn't say just government government and employers 
as a sort of private matter for parents? Has it always been the case? Yes, I think that's a really good way of, of characterising it. So uh, Britain has this uh, liberal welfare tradition, uh, which has largely placed daycare beyond its remit. So uh, local authority funded nurseries were available for families in crisis, essentially, families where it was deemed desirable for the children not to be at home with their parents. Um, also, uh, local authority funded places might have been made available to unmarried mothers, for example, or single mothers who the state did not want to support with income support and would wanted to go out, wanted to push those mothers out to work. So there's a sort of paradox there. I mean, the two exceptions would be the periods of, of the two world wars when there was a very strong pressure on government to mobilize women's labor um, in order to, to prosecute its war aims. And both during the First and Second World Wars, a huge amount of money, particularly during the Second World War, was um, channeled into opening day nurseries for use by the children of mothers working in essential industry. Um, and, uh, you know, there were over a thousand of these war nurseries open during the Second World War, and they made a huge difference. I mean, they, they showed you what life would be like for working mothers working full time who could actually leave their children in a high quality, safe, um, highly state subsidized um, childcare system. But they were seen very much as temporary measures for the purpose of the emergency of the war. And in 1918, and then again in 1945, they were nearly all closed. Uh, and the government's position then was, well, you know, we're not gonna stop mothers from going out to work if they want to, because after all, we are a liberal, well, we are a, li a liberal democracy. We don't yeah. tell women what they can and can't do, but we're not going to do anything to actually help women reconcile their caring responsibilities with their desire or their need um, to work for wages. And that's something for them to sort out, either by getting granny to come and look after mm -hmm. the kids um, or by paying for a childminder around the corner to look after the kids it's not something that the state has a responsibility to sort out we've had like a couple of viruses recently where i'm thinking i'm just thinking of ebola zika and swine flu and so forth and obviously there must have been some sort of lessons learned and i know you're not looking at this from a public health perspective so i'm not thinking about that but there must have been some lessons learned in terms of like what it did to the labor market and also to gender equality you said earlier that it's dramatically affected women more than it has affected men. And I'm just thinking, have we sort of missed a trick? And are there any sort of long lasting effects that we can see? I'm thinking mainly of Africa. There must have been some gender equality issues there. I'm afraid I, I, it's a fascinating question. I'm afraid it's not something that I uh, know very much about. I mean, my, I would, my suspicion would be that, um, uh, you know, that the, the policymakers in the UK might think that they might assume that there's only limited lessons to be learned from from Africa, for example, because they, it has such a different um, social structure and labour market. But I mean, but I don't actually know that. I mean, what mm -hmm. has struck me is how um, how ill prepared the government seems to have been for this, this when when dealing with this particular gender issue. And, and often, Boris Johnson has spoken about people going back to work, encouraging people to go back to the office, um, encouraging people to work at home, um, as though 
there is no childcare issue, as though the child, you know, as though um, it doesn't seem to occur to him that actually um, a huge chunk of the workforce now is made up of women, of mothers. Uh, and, you know, over 75% of mothers with um, dependent children are now in the labour market. So, of course, you know, they must be doing something. Someone must be looking after their kids. They must be somehow getting some childcare in order to be in the labour market. So, you know, it's not a it shouldn't come as a surprise to the government. And yet it seems as though it has yeah. that if you withdraw childcare um, at a stroke, you're going to have an issue with your workforce, with a large chunk of your workforce who's not going to be able to work. And on a sort of a long term um, sort of view, what is this going to do towards um, women's career in the future? Well, again, I think the jury's out. We have to have to wait and see. Uh, I, I mean, I think in some ways, in some respects, the cultural shift towards homeworking could help women, uh, particularly perhaps in corporate environments which have been rather hostile to homeworking in the past, which have demanded long hours, which have a sort of culture of presenteeism, of sort of being there in the office until, you know, after midnight to show how committed you are. I think if there is a sh culture shift in those sorts of organisations whereby homeworking becomes more of a norm, that could have a positive impact in the longer term for, for working mothers and for, for parents more generally. But, you know, I think it, a lot of it will come down, as we've already discussed, to the childcare issue because if there is no childcare, working at home as we've discovered in the lockdown is incredibly stressful i mean it's one thing to be working at home having dropped your kids off at school and then being able to go and pick them up later on and everything works very nicely it's all very flexible it's quite another when you're you know trying to do a a, a business meeting and you've got children kind of knocking at the door or, or underfoot and that's not going to be good for anyone's career um, so I think the two things are really related. Homeworking could help women's careers, but only if the childcare issue is sorted. Uh, yeah, okay. And um, on that note, I'm just being very conscious of the fact that we're talking about childcare and we're talking about working motherhood. Now, that there's a discussion there on wh how, why are they so tightly linked? How, how would you go about disassociation, childcare and working mothers? How could we possibly separate the two there? Well, I think my book shows that you can't really because it's so historically embedded. Women's, um, uh, the, the, these, these gendered assumptions about women's responsibilities uh, and these sexual divisions in the home, basically who, who does what and who is seen to have responsibility um, for, for what. So childcare and housework as well, which are this sort of often kind of you know, lashed together, um, have been uh, assumed to be women's domain for such a long time. And, and in the book, you know, going back to the 19th century, I talk quite a lot about the ideology of the, uh, the family wage and the male breadwinner family. And, you know, this is the idea that it's an ideal that was subscribed to really across social classes and particularly um, promoted by, by the male-led trade union movement, which is that men ought to be paid uh, a secure, large enough wage uh, on which they can keep their dependents, they can keep their family without having to send the mother out to work or to send children out to work 
as well. Um, and this was very much seen as, as the pinnacle, you know, this is this, this is the sort of it vision of domestic order in which you have a male household, male head of household who's earning a big enough and secure enough wage to look after his dependents. And that frees women then to do their proper work, their real work, the important work that they do, which is to look after the house and to, look, and to bring up their children. Uh, and, uh, you know, some families achieved that in the 19th century, a lot of them didn't, and mothers had to go out to work. And of course, many mothers actually wanted to go out to work. And this is something which I, I write quite a lot about in the book. It's sort of really one of the, the central themes about women's desires and aspirations, as well as the pressures and needs to look after their families. So I think it will be impossible to tease apart the childcare issue from the gender issue, um, uh, you know, until something very revolutionary happens in the family around um, our assumptions, um, around the ways in which these sexual divisions are so deeply embedded. Uh, and, you know, there are, there are lots of men who um, very much want to be active fathers. There are, there are men who are taking advantage of shared parental leave in order to do you know, huge amounts of childcare. Uh, and we all, you know, we all know the, we all know of cases where this is happening and that's brilliant. Um, but overall, if you look at the macro level picture, it's not that promising. One other point that I just want to make is that um, men on the whole still work full time and they work continuously over the life course without taking large breaks away from, from paid work. That's very much still the shape, the arc of the male um, career employment trajectory. Uh, there's still very low levels of part-time working amongst men. Uh, and I think one, you know, those things need to change before we can prize apart the childcare and gender issue. Is it a sort of policy level that needs to catch up or is it a sort of cultural level that needs to catch up in terms of childcare and the mindset? I think there are lots of different elements which work together. So there's a policy element. So shared parental leave is a great step forward from only having two weeks of paid paternity leave. But it still is framed around the idea that it's the woman's maternity leave and she decides whether or not to share it with the father, so which she doesn't have to do. So other countries have a use it or lose it approach where men have a certain portion of, of parental leave that is theirs alone. And if they don't use it, then the family loses it. They can't give it to the, to the mother. Um, and there are arguments for and against the two different systems. I personally think that use it or lose it is the right approach because it's at the level of symbolism. It's saying, you know, both parents have equal responsibility for the child uh, and here's your portion of leave and here's your portion of leave. Um, rather than saying it's the woman's leave and she can choose whether or not to give some of it to, to, to the father. So there's a policy issue around parental leave. Um, there's also, of course, a sort of broader structural issue around pay because on the whole, men earn more than women. And there, you know, let's not get into that. There's a huge amount of, you know, complexity behind why yeah. that, how that works. But it does mean that for many couples, if they are making decisions about who steps back for a while to look after children or who cuts their hours, um, it, there's often a kind of economic logic behind women stepping back because they're earning less. 
Um, and then there is, as you say, the cultural issue. And I think this is where actually writing a history book really helps because, um, you know, the legacy of decades of, of centuries of um, gender ideology, I mean, this very, very kind of strong set of deeply embedded assumptions that childcare is a woman's domain. And I think it's very, very difficult to, to unpick that. I mean, it takes a very long time. Does this sort of, this outbreak must provide us some opportunities like to sort of think about gender and sex differences in the working environment being recorded? Can it sort of, do you think policymakers and sort of researchers can take that more into account? Well, I hope that the COVID crisis will produce a huge amount of, of new knowledge about gendered practices, gendered working practices. I think it already is doing that. I mean, there's some, been some great work done by the Institute of Fiscal Studies and other organisations really tracking what mothers and fathers are doing at home, as well as tracking um, the broader impact of the crisis on men and women's employment. Yeah. And there are some very sort of interesting patterns there around, you know, women being in the front line of many NHS services, but also being hit hardest by um, the lockdown in sectors like retail or, or hospitality or tourism, that that actually um, employs a huge number of, of, of women. Uh, so I think, you know, actually the, the, the crisis is in many ways sort of really kind of shining a light on the gendered patterns and the gendered structures um, of our of our labor market and economy as well of course actually as well looking at ethnicity and race and thinking about how those things intersect and in a way we you know we've all become much much more aware I think of uh, of some of these some of these issues I hear this phrase all the time that as we return to a new no a more normal is it a new normal or is it new normal a new normal <laughs> How could we get on the sort of a good track now, not just getting returned to normal, but what do you think the steps we can take to get to a better normal? Well, I don't hold out much hope, but I do think that the childcare issue is so incredibly important. Uh, and I do think that some fairly radical action needs to be taken, actually just to get back to where we were, which was not a particularly great place. Um, but again, you know, I hope that perhaps the crisis may have helped to focus minds on, on the fragility of the, of, of the childcare sector. I mean, we have this sort of infrastructure of childminders and, and nurseries and a, a voucher scheme, but actually it's so fragile. You know, the, the, it rests on all of these things happening uh, at, at once. So I think, I think that would be a step forward if we can, if we can sort that out and, and make our childcare sector more resilient. Uh, I think, again, also just to return to a theme that we've already discussed with the homeworking, I do think that there's a lot of techno-utopianism in the air when we talk about homeworking. And it's interesting for me because I've been researching the history of homeworking and I'm sort of very interested actually in some of the early debates in the 1970s and 1980s when networked um, computing allowed, began to allow um, Sort of managers and executives to work from home uh, and then in the 1990s with um, you know the creation of the, of the internet and there's a sort of a huge amount of, of optimism um, and rather kind of um, um, sort of I extreme sort of visions of, of how cities could change and how the world would be transformed by these new technologies these new communication technologies and I think that um, 
there is a danger actually of letting that kind of thinking run away from us once more if we don't actually focus, as I say, on these questions about, well, what can we learn from the experience of people working at home during the crisis? Well, we can learn that it's very stressful to work from home with children underfoot. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's actually very, very um, challenging to learn the new um, uh, the, the new sort of techniques that you need to learn in order to be effective um, online, whether you're teaching, whether you're doing a court hearing, whether you're in a business meeting. Um, and though that takes time and actually requires investment and training by employers, they can't just assume that people know how to do it. Um, it's also very expensive in terms of technology. So most people, I think, have just been paying for their own their own broadband bills. They may have been buying themselves new laptops, buying themselves, you know, microphones and all sorts of things, which which they otherwise wouldn't have needed to have. You know, so employers need to need to can't just assume that everyone's got a kind of great setup at home. And also, you know, the housing issue as well. I mean, a lot of people have been struggling um, working from their bedroom. I'm in my bedroom at the moment, by the way, because my children are downstairs and my husband's in his office. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, don't just don't have space actually yeah. to work at home. So I think we have to sort of rein in the techno utopianism and sort of really focus on what employers need to do to make home working work and also to overcome social isolation because i think that's the other big problem with home working if you spend all day sitting at home on your own staring at a screen um that's not necessarily great for your for your well-being in the longer term so helen it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you and like this is such a great debate to have um so thank you so much for your time but on that before we leave has there been any interest in your latest book then because of covid Yes, there really has. It's been very uh, striking how many reviewers um, have made that connection and have found the book, which of course was written and finished long before COVID struck, uh, and have you know have found that the history, the historical perspective, the long view, really enlightening for then making sense of these gender divisions, these sexual divisions that we're now seeing magnified, intensified uh, under the COVID crisis. And it just sort of goes to show how important it is, I think, to look back and to um, to take the long view in order to sort of understand our present. Great. Well, thanks again for your time. And um, you should tell everyone what the book is actually called. It's called Double Lives, A History of Working Motherhood, and it's out with Bloomsbury Books. That's it from us at the We Are The University podcast. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from and give us a five-star rating.